everyone else, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Whether you have the physical copy or your digital copy, let's all be looking at this passage together because we got a lot to talk about and I want to make sure we understand the flow of this. We've been off of 1 Peter for a few weeks, so let me bring us back into uh, the mindset. Let's get the the gears turning and let's remember where we uh, left off. Uh, The series, Identity Matters. We're talking about the matters of identity, Christian identity, but also Peter here is helping us remember through the whole book that our identity, knowing who we are, actually being someone and knowing who that actually is matters in helping us to live the life we need to live because what we think about ourselves truly does impact what we do and how we live. We're going to see that probably more so than any other sermon today in 1 Peter. Last time we left off, we talked about our triumphant example. If you remember, at the end of chapter 3, Jesus also suffered in the flesh, being our example, but not just an example of suffering, also our example of victory. As he died, made alive in the spirit, and he went and he proclaimed victory over the spirits in prison who thought that they could win over God. And then he correlated that victory to those who are baptized, get to continue in this victory lap. And we saw people baptized showing like, hey, I'm, I'm a believer. I've put my faith in Jesus and I'm not like those who go down into the pit, into prison under the judgment of God. I'm like Jesus who rose from the dead and I will be with him forever and a joy a shout in heaven is happening as the cloud of witnesses and the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents because this marvelous miracle of life, eternal life, is being given to them. And so the focus was on the fact that Jesus' suffering accomplished something, which means we should, we should think that when we suffer like him, it is making an eternal impact as well. So, Last time, our triumphant Savior. Today, we're going to talk about this, suffering like our Savior. We looked at the example. Now we're going to bring it home and and think about us trying to follow after that example. So today, three questions to guide our thinking. Three questions that will answer from this passage that are leading our hearts to being willing to have this Christ-like attitude of suffering, whatever situation we find ourselves in, on our time in earth. And the first question is this, that springs from thinking about Jesus as our example into today. The question is this, how in the world am I to live up to the example of Christ? Right? Is anybody else thinking that? We're thinking about the example of Jesus. We think of this climactic sermon of Jesus suffering to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now you're going to talk about me living up to that. How in the world? That's impossible. I I don't see how I could ever live up to the example of my savior. Well, before we answer that question, let's let's make a reminder. What type of uh, suffering are we talking about here? Uh, we, we've, we've defined it, let's define it again so when we're talking about, we're not talking about just any type of pain you experience in life. 
You know, because sometimes suffering is a result of our own choices. Sometimes we suffer because we sin. Sometimes we reap what we sow on the negative sense. We reap to the flesh. We sow to the flesh, so we reap from the flesh. And we sow. This is not the type. Actually, Peter is trying to contrast that type of suffering with the type of suffering that's good. It says this: First Peter three seventeen. For it is better to suffer for doing good. Notice this: if that be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. This is where the enemy begins to work in our heart because we're like, oh, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to suffer. No, if you live on planet Earth, you're going to suffer. What do you want your suffering to count for? Nothing or everything. If you could choose how you suffer or the type of suffering have, would you want to have the suffering that leads to a guilty conscience and shame and the type of suffering where you know you deserve it and there's nothing good coming out of it except your own pain and misery and a wake of destruction that you're leaving in your life and your relationships because of the choices you're making? Or would you rather have a type of suffering that leaves you with a clean conscience, that leaves you focused on the hope of what is to come to you, that which... which forces you to see the eyes of God looking down on you, pleased, and, and, and experiencing pleasure over the faith and endurance that you're experiencing on earth for his sake, where you are choosing to do the right thing, not the wrong thing, and the world hates you for it. Which suffering would you choose? This is the type of suffering Peter's talking about. Jesus was crucified not just because his name was Jesus. He was crucified because of the way he thought, the way he talked, the way he lived. If you've ever been to Good News Club, we teach kids to, that sin is anything we think, say, or do that displeases God, breaks his law, and breaks his heart. Jesus was the epitome, the archetype example of living for his father in perfection and righteousness. Everything he thought, said, and did was right and good. And that's what got him killed. We're talking about this type of suffering. So again, now that we know what type of suffering we're talking about, let's ask the question, how in the world am I to live up to this example? Anybody else thinking that with me? Like that's a pretty, pretty good question. Peter, help me out here. Help me understand this. Well, the answer lies in the first verse of chapter four. He gives the answer right off the bat. It's gonna sound simple, but it's profound. And if we can understand this, then the course of our life and the content of our life will begin to change. First Peter chapter four, verse one. Look what Peter says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, and real quick, correlate that to verse 18 of chapter three. For Christ also suffered. So that's the thought he's in. So we talked about Christ's suffering. Now verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, comma, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That word arm is, is a military term. It's, it's the idea of you are, you, you are grabbing weaponry and you are putting it on yourself and you are armed and ready for war. You don't just have the scabbard, but the sword, the sword is in the sheath. The, the, the axe is tucked into the belt. You're, you're armed and ready for war. And, and, and what are we arming ourselves with? I, I can't help but to think of Paul, who's reminding us in Ephesians 6 that our, our battle, our war, is not with flesh and blood. 
So we're not talking about a real literal sword. We're talking about something that dips into the spiritual realm. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And that's immediately when we get into the spiritual realm. Your mind, your soul, who you are in the inner person, how you think is the center of where change needs to happen in order for change in your life to begin to happen. How in the world am I to live up to Christ's example? By arming myself with the same way of thinking. What same way of thinking are we talking? What's the whole context here? The same way of thinking that Jesus had where I'm gonna live for the Father and I'm gonna be willing to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians chapter two. I am ready and willing and expect to suffer while living on planet earth on a fallen world if I'm going to live for God. I'm arming myself. I'm equipping myself with this attitude of thought. My thinking must change. What type of Christian will you be if you are not armed with an expectation to suffer for Jesus? What if you're armed with an expectation that life will get better and you'll have all your dreams, all of your money and everything else solved, your health, wealth, prosperity, whatever it is, solved if you follow Jesus? Well, then you won't be like these Christians who suffered to the point of death. You won't be like the Nigerian Christians who I just heard about this morning, 140 of them slaughtered, by their enemies on Christmas Eve. Christians specifically targeted, killed with machetes and guns, stoned to death. This is literally the type of Christian that Peter's writing to. And what we're gonna see today is if if you're following Jesus and it brings that type of suffering into your life, you do not need to worry as if something strange is happening to you. You actually should expect. So here we are in America, the most uh, rich, uh, safe, place. We call ourselves Christians. Are we armed with this way of thinking? Have we settled in our heart that we are willing to suffer like, our, like Jesus did or more uh, relevant and close to us today like our Nigerian Christians have? Would we be willing to endure that for Jesus? If that's not armed, if that's not settled, if you don't have that, yep, I'm ready. I've got that good. I've checked that off the list. I'm ready for that. Your life will not change. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Then he says this, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So the next question I have is this. Why is changing the way I think so important? It feels like a good follow-up question, maybe the question of the soul when you hear this. Like, okay, how in the world can I suffer like Jesus? Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. That seems too simple. Why is just changing the way I think? Changing uh, even more specifically that word think, purpose, the, 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 mo- the, the purpose in life that's on my inside, my mind that I'm living for. Why would I change that and make that line up? Why is that so important? Well, let's talk about a few things. And now I want us to dive in to a, a, a realm of reality to help equip you with actual change and transformation in your life. Anybody here know what it feels like to want to follow Jesus, to uh, say that you're following Jesus, but to still fall into things you don't want to do, to still be doing things you don't want to do, think things you don't want to think, say things you don't want to think, continue to struggle with the flesh? Well, there's a reason for that. And the Bible puts the answer 
always on the mind, starts on the inside and it works out. Jesus says the outside doesn't affect the inside, it's the inside. Things start on the inside. So let me ask you a question. Why, let's ask ourselves this question, why do I do what I do? Ever wonder that? Ever been confused by your own actions? Why do I do what I do? Well, it's because this, it's because I want what I want. Any desire you have, any want you have, you'll find a way to accomplish that, do that, or try to work towards it if you have a legitimate desire and want for that thing. Well, then the question is this, why do I want what I want then? And it leads us back to where we're going to talk today. I want what I want because I think what I think. I believe what I believe. It all starts in the mind. And you can see this process happening in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. Eve and Adam sin. They have something that they do. There's disobedience. But if you rewind, the disobedience is there because there was a desire there. But there's a desire in Adam and Eve they didn't have before that moment. How did that desire get there? The desire got there because there was a doubt that started in the mind. There was thinking that began to shift. The thinking that, oh, what God said doesn't really mean what he said. What God meant doesn't really mean what he meant. What God warned doesn't really mean what he said. There's a doubt there about God's implanted word. How did the doubt get there? Through deception that came in from the enemy. A separate word that came and brought deception and confusion. And it started, and the enemy knew this, because he's a spiritual being. So he always works with words. Because it's God's word that makes a difference So it's going to be his word that's going to make the negative difference in your life. Everything is starting in the mental mainframe of of your mind, your soul, your inner person, who you really are. And the secrets of your heart, what you're thinking on and dwelling on will determine what you want. And then your wants will fuel your actions. You will do something as a result of what you want. So if we want to start to experience change, we must be renewed in our mind. So why is changing the way I think so important? Here's the answer. Because transformation is impossible apart from renewing your mind. We're not going to turn there. Romans chapter 12 reiterates this, where Paul says, do not be conformed to the world. But he says this, be transformed. Anybody want to be transformed? Be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. And then verse three goes on and Paul basically says, first thing I want you to think, not to think too highly of yourself. God's word is constantly invading what we think, what we believe, what our purpose and motive is. And he's trying to give us truth that will change those beliefs that will then be poured out through our hands and feet and will change the way we live. So when you see someone who's not changed in the way they live, they probably haven't been changed in the way they think which means their passions are still racing and being fueled. So why is changing the way I think so important? So here's the bulk of the rest of the passage Then the question that's gonna guide the rest of our thought today. How in the world can I live up to Christ's example? By arming myself with the same way of thinking. Why is thinking so important? Because it starts there. It is impossible to change without changing my thinking. So the question is this, the final one. So what thoughts... What thinkings, what purpose in my mind is going to motivate me to live and suffer like Christ did? 
And that's exactly what Peter's gonna do. He's gonna continue the string of thought after what he said that's gonna fuel and motivate our thinking to be changed so we are ready for the war. Armed with the right way of thinking to be ready for a war of living on earth, prepared, if it be God's will, to suffer like my brothers and sisters in Nigeria. You guys ready? First Peter 4, 1 through 6, let me read the rest of the passage. And I want to give you five thoughts to arm yourself with. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There's a lot here. There, there's, there's this kind of like one of those things where you read it and you know it sounds important and it's like epic and you kind of get a few pieces, but so much is said so quickly that sounds so important that I'm left like, okay, what did Peter just say? So here's what I wanna do. I wanna organize what he just said where he's trying to invade our thinking to get us to think differently about our time here on earth. I've organized into five different thoughts that I want us to be armed with, to be equipped with, to leave here with, and to remember. And if, if best, to even rehearse in our daily life to be able to help us live like Jesus did on our time on earth. The first thought is this that every Christian should have is this, I'm done with sin. I'm done with sin because I'm dead to sin. I am done with sin. Verse one, he says this, arm yourself with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now you're right to have a big question mark there. You're like, that sounds strange. That sounds like Peter's talking about someone who is perfectly sinless. If that's what he means, then that's not me. He does not mean cease from sin as in never sins ever. Let's think about what Peter's trying to say here. He's referring to Christ as an example. Jesus also suffered. He says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, comma, and he's gonna explain it a little bit more. He's gonna say, for whoever has suffered in the flesh. Where does that phrase suffered in the flesh? Where have we seen that before? Well, we immediately heard us tell that Jesus suffered in the flesh. And we keep hearing this thought about suffering in the physical body during our temporary time on earth. That type of suffering, just like Jesus. Whoever is suffering like Jesus, then he says this, has ceased from sin. How am I to make sense of this? What does he mean? We know he doesn't mean perfect sinlessness because only Jesus is the perfect sinless one. The point he's making is that person has, is done with sin. Their, their mode and their purpose of life has changed. They're no longer living for their flesh. And you're like, well, how do you get that? Well, keep reading. He, he further explains it when he says this in verse two. Has ceased from sin, comma, so as to live the rest of their time, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So, so the thought, the thought that we arm ourselves with, that we, we remember and we are equipped with, if I'm saved, I'm done with sin. 
Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter six about those who've been a slave to sin. Who's, you're a slave to sin because you've presented your members to sin for unrighteousness. And then he, he culminates it in this thought that you've forgotten who you are. He says you need to reckon which is a thought. Paul equips us with the thought, reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God because that's true. It's a true thought. When you were saved, you were saved for the purpose of of being given salvation, but also saved for the purpose of being set free from sin so you would no longer live in it, be controlled by it, be a slave to it. The person who has suffered in the flesh, the course of their life is one where it's like, I'm done with sin. I am done with sin. The second thought is this. What are the thoughts that are gonna motivate me is this. It's about his will, not mine. You know, if you're walking through the day rehearsing something similar to this, like, no, this isn't me. I can't do this because it's not me. This is no longer my identity. I'm done with sin. But also when it comes to what I want, man, that's last place. It's about what he wants, not what I want. So look what it says here in verse two. Purpose, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, How? No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Implying that that's how we lived before, before we knew God. It was all about what I wanted. It was all about waking up and going to bed, trying to figure out how I could satiate my burning desires for the things that would please me. That's what my life is about. That's all all the world knows is more, more, more of what they want, want, want. And they want, want, want because they don't know what we're truly satisfied like we heard last week in the new year. Man, God gave us everything to be enjoyed, but only he can satisfy. And until you know that, until your thinking is renewed, you will continue to try to satisfy yourself with the things in the world that never will. Because those things are fueled by a passion, a want, a desired that has been, uh, emanates from your body because in your mind you believe what will satisfy you. You have faith about what will make you happy and you go after that. That want is created. James says something similar. He says each person is drawn away and enticed by what? The enemy? No, his own desires. And when desire gives birth to sin, sin leads to death. This is the goal of the enemy to get us to destroy ourselves. Kill, steal, and destroy. But how does he do that? Through words. He knows he can spend all of his time changing the way you think, giving you his own fake gospel message. Invade it with your mind through everything you read, everything you watch, everything you think to try to solidify in your mind what you really believe and that'll create desires and lead towards certain actions. No wonder even we as Christians spend so much time dwelling in what the enemy's trying to tell us. And it sounds like the promises and the words of God just can't get through that because we are saturated with his words and his thoughts and his message. It's about his will, not mine. This is the purpose, saved so that our time here on earth would be like Jesus, where Jesus was, was in the flesh suffering. You think of Jesus' time in the garden when he's sweating drops of blood. He's, he's, he's filling in the human weakness, the anguish of what's about to behold him. And he's staying awake all night and, and 
Hebrews tells us that he prayed with loud cries and tears. And he was frustrated at the disciples that they fell asleep and couldn't wake an hour and pray. And he says, man, temptation's coming. You got to stay awake and pray. Jesus understood in the flesh just how important it was to pray and seek the face of God to be able to endure in the flesh the strong temptations that come our way. And Jesus is what? In the flesh, in his human body, experiencing anguish. Man, this is coming upon me and it's here. God, if this cup three times, if this cup could pass for me, please, nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. And you see the humanity, but then the perfect obedience of Jesus being married. But you see the reality of living like Jesus doesn't automatically mean we'll be able to endure suffering simple, simply, easily. It's, it, Jesus struggled with it. He felt the pain of that. It's not easy. These things are not just trite things we're saying. And it's like, hey, go and do it. It's like, no, this is hard. This is why we need God and we need to be leaning on him and seeking his face for his will always, every day. It's telling myself, it's not about what I want. It's about what he wants. It's not about what I want. It's about what he wants. When it comes to my family, it's not about what I want. It's about what he wants. It's what others want. It's, what, it's how I can serve and help others. It's about what he wants, not, not about what I want. Now, this is the part where we all collectively like this. This is hard. Because every day I'm struggling with this. We are, which is why we desperately need to be leaning on God. Why our thinking needs to constantly be invaded by preaching and reading and studying, feeding and eating the word. Man shall not live by bread alone, right? But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's about his will, not mine. Let me ask you this. Do you know the will of God for your life? You might say, I have no idea what that is. Well, you can know what it is. He reveals what his will is here in scripture. That's called his revealed will. You don't have to put a question mark. It's just a matter of ignorance. You just need to learn and hear what it says. And he's very clear. And Peter, very clear. The will of God is mentioned about five other verses. And every time he mentions it, he talks about it being linked with it being God's will to suffer for him. So in this context, it's a very specific will. It's not about me making my life safe so I never am harmed for Jesus and trying to make everyone in life love me. It's about being willing to suffer for him if that be his will. What did Jesus say? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But whoever, who, who, whoever uh, uh, is, saves their life doesn't want to loot it, wants to spend all of their energy and effort trying to make sure their life doesn't hurt for him. He says, we'll lose it and it's not worthy to be my disciple. What is the message of a disciple? What is the call? Pick up your cross every day and follow me. Do you know what a cross is? They would have known what a cross is. That's, I think that's just poetic sounding to us today and we forget what, the, what that really means. If you're gonna follow after me, you have to pick up an execution instrument, your own execution and carry it on your shoulders every day. That's how you follow. That's what's worthy of, of, those are the ones who are worthy of following me. Those who are willing to be executed for my purpose and will. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. And when we experience that, he says, now do that for the world. No guarantee that you're gonna be called to martyrdom. Some are, some aren't. But if it be God's will, are you settled? Are you carrying that same way of thinking? That's what matters. That's why it's so important to spend time renewing our mind so we can be transformed instead of always just trying to deal with the symptoms on the outside through worldly means. God wants our thinking to be changed. 
Third thought is this. You know, I've, I'm done with sin. It's about his will, not mine. And third thought is this. I've wasted enough time indulging. Look at verse three. Peter says, for the time that is past suffices. It's good enough, plenty, it's enough. For the time that passed, it suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And what do the Gentiles want to do? He says this, living in sensuality. Literally a life lived that's utterly, completely controlled by the desires of the flesh. It's someone who's, I'm living by and my purpose is for feeding my flesh. Senses and pleasures, that's what that life is. That's what the people who do not know God, that's how they live. Comma, passions, which is a further reiteration of just desire, strong fleshly desire. Then he gets more specific. Drunkenness, which is being in, drinking enough alcohol to the point where you're intoxicated and no longer controlled by the spirit, but by a liquid. Then he gets even more specific, all in group settings, orgies, sexual deviation, anything outside of God's plan for sex, for one man and one woman in the context of marriage, faithful to each other, the world indulges in the passions of everything outside of that. We don't have to talk about what it all is. We just know anything and everything outside of that. Drinking parties where the whole purpose to get together is to get drunk together. Specifically, when you study this, you find that he's even thinking about the type of people who would, who would walk through the town inebriated and loud, right? Disturbing everyone, right? They're having a good old jolly time. And then he says this, and lawless idolatry. Basically, uh, he's, he's specifically talking about to the religious idols of that day, which some of them were even the God of wine and different types of God, where you actually were encouraged to indulge in these sensualities in homage to these gods. So wow, what a God that serves you. That's convenient, right? It's already what I want to do. Now I found a God that will make me feel better about doing what I want to do. Like, man, we don't struggle with that today. You better believe we do. It's more deceptive. We may not have like an actual God in the sky that we worship, but we will find anything and any reason and any person and any philosophy and any teaching that will help fuel what we want. And the world is replete in doing this. And sadly, the church is apostatizing in this and placating and cowing down and giving in to the same type of thoughts of the world. And as we're gonna see, the whole purpose is to stand up to this and to be willing to suffer for doing the right thing instead of giving in. And if the world would hate you and call you a bigot and call you the problem, which they will, we're gonna see here in, the pro- in, in a second, that's what you should expect. But we should be carrying this thought that Peter's talking about I'm, I've wasted enough time indulging. Now think about your own life. Think about all of the time spent wasting temporary time on earth. All of the energy and the affection and the dopamine that God created for him placed on things that do not matter. And how we struggle with that, even as Christians today, every single day. And maybe someone here is saying, like, I haven't figured out how to solve that problem. Well, you need to listen to what Peter's saying. You do what you do because you want what you want, and you want what you want because you think what you think. You have to start renewing your mind with the word of God. You have to stop accepting and adopting God's ways in your mind. Instead of just feeling like you're good with God because you have the right answers on the test, it's different. It's not about having the right answer and, and admitting, yeah, that's true. That should be true. It's about your, your, the center of your heart, loving God with your affection more than everything else. That's why the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
because God knows everything else will fall in place if you just have your affection, your desire, your passion for him above everything else, then he wins over everything else. I'm done and I've spent enough time of my life indulging. You know, this thought that we rehearse is gonna help us. It's gonna help us stay on the path of honoring God and living like Jesus, living like his son. Look at this fourth thought we should carry. And it's this, I know the world will hate me. It's, it's, it's a, I'm not surprised, which is exactly what he's trying to get at here. Verse four, with respect to this, with respect to what? With respect to what I've just talked about, what the Gentiles want to do. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So let's talk about some of these words. So now Peter recognizes like, hey, if you're gonna live right, you're gonna live good and you're gonna reject these things that the world want, they're gonna think something about you. Well, one, the first immediate thought when you don't wanna do what they wanna do, when you don't wanna do what the world wants to do, they're surprised. They're like, they, they're surprised that you're not joining them in the same and it uses the word flood of debauchery which is this idea of, of like water just being poured, not slowly, but just all of it just dumping down into something. It's, it's this, this language that helps you understand that there's just this overwhelming sense, the never-ending, never-satiated passion and desire, a flood of what? Debauchery, all of these things, ways of living that are outside of God that are passionately taking over your heart, burning desires that are leading you to do things. He's like, they're surprised when you don't join them. Why are they surprised? Because it's all they can think about. Their whole life is sensual. They cannot even fathom. And it doesn't even make sense. And they don't even have a a compartmentalized thought that they can go to and open up and understand why you wouldn't want to join them. So what do they do then? How does that make them feel when they have the law written on their heart, even though they suppress it with the truth, see you doing the right thing? What did they do to Jesus? They hated him for it and they began to conspire how to kill him. And so it says here, Peter says this, you do not join them and what do they do? And they malign you. Malign is the same word for blaspheme. They literally speak against you in in a vilifying way. So here's what it means. If you're suffering in the flesh here on earth, if the world looks at you and your identity as a Christian, a child of God and says, you're the problem, that's a sign that you're on the right path blaspheme you and vilify you. And what, what do we hear all the time? Simply because we're just trying to speak what we believe to be true about uh, gender and sexuality and God's creation and, and the problem with life being we're all sinners. And we, like we hear that and we're like, yes, we rejoice in the truth. And then the world hears that and they're like, you bigot, you racist. You can hear it coming. You're the problem. And then what do we try to do after that though? We try to find a way to like, oh, how can I change my language? How, how can I make them not say that about me? And then, and then Christians, churches are getting stuck all, all in this, this world of just trying to, to please the world. Please don't hate me. And Jesus says, they hated me. I did it perfectly. I, I spoke the truth in love perfectly. Poured out grace and truth. Was friends to sinners. And guess what? They hated me. So what should you expect? They're gonna hate me too. And so our effort should not be put into trying to speak the, the, the truth in love and in, in something else that will make them not hate me. 
It's speak the truth in love. And if they hate you for it, then you know that you're blessed. God sees it and he's pleased with it. But that's what you should expect. So, so you should be armed with thinking that doesn't have you surprised when the world hates you for doing the right thing, saying the right thing, thinking, living. But that also requires a life full of repentance, right? You're saying, no, I'm not joining you in these things. I don't fear you, I fear God. Which brings us to the final thought. I pity them, not myself. You know, we as Christians, we think about our Nigerian brothers who were martyred in horrible ways on Christmas Eve and we, start to, we overflow with sadness for our brothers and sisters. We should, that, that is horribly sad. And Hebrew says, these are the type of the people that the world is not worthy of and, and God will avenge them. But them as well as us, our compassion should extend past our brothers and sisters suffering and past our own suffering into pitying those who are going to be destroyed forever under the wrath of God and experience something far worse than anything they can do to us. So I'm carrying this thought. I'm armed and equipped with this thought. I pity them, not myself. So when they're stoning me or when they're crucifying me, what's coming out of my heart is God forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm more concerned for them and what they're doing to me, the position of wrath that's putting them in before God. You know, if you're carrying and armed with this thought, it really will help you in the moment when you're being maligned, persecuted, spoken against. It'll keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles in a way that will actually help them see Jesus, which is what we want. This is why this theology of suffering, one, must exist because it's biblical, but then two, must be accepted because we can't make an impact in the world the way Jesus did without following the path of the cross like he did. He says this, It says, they malign you, verse five, but they, see where he changes the thought, right? The focus was on them and what's happening. They malign you and quickly, Peter changes the thought, doesn't want you thinking about yourself and where you're hurt and how they're hurting you, but they will give an account to him, God, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then he says this in verse six, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now we need to look at this, these two verses to make sure we understand the, what he's saying here because there's, there's been a lot of confusion over these verses. I just want you to see the context. You're flowing with me. Verse five, but they, talking about those who malign you, they're the ones who are gonna have to give an account. To who? To God who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So now your mind should be going to the judgments of God. And we know that there's not just one judgment. At the end of time, the sheep and the goat are separated. Christians are judged by Jesus for their works. And we're told that bad works, wood, hay and stubble burns up and what's left are only the things that matter. But we're also promised as Christians, when we're judged, our soul's saved through judgment. Yeah, our works may be burnt up, but the soul is saved, Paul says in Corinthians. But then we're also told about the great, the great white throne judgment where the world that rejected Jesus will stand before him and give an account. Their last chance to appeal. Hey, go ahead, give an account for what you did and and explain why you don't deserve wrath. And every single excuse, every single argument will fall short and the gavel will fall and they will be cast away from the presence of God, which they wanted. But at the right hand of God 
our pleasures forevermore. And his presence is the fullness of joy. And they're cast away from that. So when you're 100% on the opposite side of the one who has joy and pleasure, what are you going to experience? What's the opposite of joy? Misery. What's the opposite of pleasure? Pain. And that's what they said during their time on earth. That's what I want. So God gives it to them and they're cast and separated forever in a place of hell where the wrath of God is poured out on them, simply getting what they want. You cannot be in hell and experience the things that are only in the presence of God. And God gives us time on earth to experience a little bit of both. So we get a little taste that he's good and not having him is not good to help waken our soul up to respond and not go with the world on the wide path to destruction. But we only hear the message of Jesus and take the narrow path that leads to life because it's worth it. And any pain that comes on that narrow path is worth it. You hear it, brother and sister? Any pain that you and I experience on the narrow path to eternal life is worth it. And we should not pity ourselves when the world is hurting us for that, but we should pity them because we see where they're headed and we know where we're headed. Where are we headed? Look at verse six. He says, for this is why the gospel, so now he's talking about them, the Christians. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Who are the those who are dead? It's your brothers and sisters who have died before you. Those who have actually suffered at the hand of the martyring people before who are gonna be judged by God. Well, how do you know he's talking about them? Because look what he says next. He says, that though judged in the flesh the way people are. Your brothers and sisters were judged by the people on earth and they poured out their own way of thinking. They believed that you were the problem and so they killed you. They killed your family, they killed your friends and now they're trying to kill you. Snuff out your light in the world. And so what would be the temptation? The temptation to think they've lost, they, they missed out on the second coming. They died in a way that was uh, accursed. So, so maybe they're not good with God. He's assuring them, no, they are. Even Jesus hung on a cursed tree that even those who are dead and you who are alive, what are you promised? The gospel was preached to you for this purpose, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. What was the last time we heard about living in the spirit? When Jesus died, but was made alive in the spirit and he went and preached to the spirits in prison and then he rose on the third day. The gospel has been, if the gospel has been preached to you and you received it and you hold on to it, the gospel was preached to you for the purpose of saving you and giving you an inheritance that chapter one talks about, a living hope that's waiting for you. You have an anticipation of an eternal existence of pleasure and joy with the one who laid down his life for you. And so you have a temporary time where he says, I want you to do the same for those who are still lost in darkness. And it requires you being willing to say no to the passions and being willing to go down the path of suffering if that be brought to you. That's gonna make the biggest difference on planet earth. Not just having the right answers. Being willing to suffer for what's right. Saying no to man and yes to God. So let's rehearse these thoughts. And when you leave today, we're actually gonna give you a piece of paper that's gonna have these thoughts on them. It feels appropriate that we're talking, the one command in this passage is arm yourself with the same way of thinking. So we're gonna give you today a little slip that has these thoughts that you need to be armed with. Put them on your fridge, put it in your pocket, put it in your car. Arm yourself, brothers and sisters, with this way of thinking. What are the things? Look, look, I am done with sin. It's about his will, not mine. I've wasted enough time indulging. I know the world will hate me, but I pity them, not myself. 
And if this way of thinking begins to be adopted and, and second nature to you and you walk with this, you live with this, your purpose in life is this, you just stand back and watch how it changes your behavior. It will change you because your thinking has been changed. It's exactly what the gospel's doing. The message is heard. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear, Jesus says. And those are the people who are blessed and who are changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you know, you know my heart. You know all of our hearts. You dwell in the secret place. You are not fooled by our facades. You are not in any way impressed by the things that people are impressed by. You dwell in our mind and you know us. We are naked before you. We cannot fool you. And God, to prepare a message like this, to have to stand before brothers and sisters and to know you know who I am and you know where I've struggled and where I've sinned and what I, the passions that are still there that I'm struggling to give up. God, it is a fearful thing to stand before brothers and sisters and declare a message like this, but thank you for your mercy. And I know my brothers and sisters feeling the same way, thinking about our uh, family across the world who we do not know, but we know in the spirit that have died and the way Peter's talking about that you would be with them You'd be with their families, but you'd let their deaths not be in vain and you'd begin to save those, even those who killed them. Their hearts would be broken. And so, Father, for the time here on earth, on the place on earth, in the region where we are, you would equip us and arm us with the same way of thinking so we can make a difference here where we are with the people around us still lost in darkness to our family, to our coworkers, to our neighbors. God, we need your help with this. You tell us to start in the mind. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.